You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. We're going to start off saying long time no see with the assumption that you may have already listened to today's other episode with UK punk band Brutalicators. They're playing a couple shows with this guest, Proper, coming up real soon. As a band I love and the very first episode of this podcast, I can easily say that the Great American Novel is the best album Proper's ever written. Our conversation is really wide-reaching. We're talking about writing an album that's not quite as uplifting, branching out into heavier music to give representation that they didn't see when they were growing up, writing with their self-described idol, Dan Campbell of the Wonder Years, while still being able to say no and not catering to white suburban male experience, and just overall being badasses and doing the things they want. All that and more coming up in two seconds. It's really interesting that this was like your first kind of traditional album rollout. I'm wondering like how that's going. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. I fucking hate it. Because uh, <laughs> we usually are just like, hey, here's the album. Or the second time we were like, hey, here's a single. And then a week later, okay, here's the album. So uh, this has been torture. It's been really, we record we recorded it 13 months ago already. Um, and we were like, okay, cool. Summer 2021. Let's rock the shit. And here we are about to be spring 2022 and it's finally coming out. So it's not been, you know, the labels are right, but it hasn't been fun being patient. I don't have patience in me to my core. <laughs> but I mean, it's got to be like super exciting that you have the the UK and Europe tour to look forward to. I know you had like South American plans before the pandemic kind of ruined everything as well. Like I'd love to hear kind of about just those plans in general and how you're feeling about it. Yeah. So to the, the UK and Europe tour was supposed to be 2019. Or going into that was supposed to be 2020, I think. We booked it 2019. So it's that same tour, just push back, push back, push back, finally happening. So it's like, I don't have any excitement for it because it's just the fourth time we pushed it back. So I'm like, I'll believe it when I step foot, you know, like I'll believe it when I step foot on on UK soil. Um, but yeah, we were lining up. It was South Africa, actually. But, oh, um, okay. Yeah, we were lining up a week, two weeks in South Africa. And we found a like a point person, whatever you want to call them. And like, he, we got the route figured out. Uh, he was in a band. So he's like, you want us to uh, do the run with you? Would you have a mind? And then like everything grinded to a halt. Um, and he was like, I am 100% sure we can set this tour up. And it was very crushing when we realized that it just wasn't going to happen. And then eventually like our label lost contact with the guy. And I'm just, I, I habitually delete my emails the second I'm done with them. So we're just like, I don't know. We're, we we want to pick it back up, but right now it's like let's make sure this UK and Europe tour actually happens and uh, set the tone for us touring internationally for the next probably album cycle or two. I feel like as a whole, kind of like suburbia was like your search for the right location for you, and then mm-hmm. I spent the winter is like your search for the right mindset to be in. So I'm curious, yeah. like what what does that make the Great American Novel? Um. It's kind of like acceptance in a really like dour way, I guess. Uh, cause it's not, a, it's not as uplifting as a record as the first two, as, as you probably noticed. Um, 
I don't know. Like I saw this tweet and it's like, I can't believe I've lived through three once in a lifetime events in my, in my 20 short 27 years of life. And it's just like, yeah, like it's an unprecedented time of like technological advances and, and advances in cinema and art and film and, and medicine and sports. And then it's still, we're just, we're not at the moon yet for some reason, but we totally could be. Like, you know, you know, it's like when you first learned about Elon Musk, you're like, oh man, that guy's going to do it for everybody. And then you, you know, and then now you're like, oh, what an asshole, you know? <laughs> so like, that's kind of the, 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 the vibe of this record is like acceptance. I found my place and it's not as, it's not as fun as I thought it was going to be. And kind of just holding on to your life while everything around through no control of your own just spins out. And that's kind of realizing what for me turning 30 was. Yeah, I mean, can you talk a little bit more kind of about the the concept as a whole? Like last time we talked, you mentioned that you kind of come up with a theme and like an outline for the arc of your albums before you even kind of start to write the music. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what that looked like for the Great American Novel. Yeah, so very much keeping up with the theme where like the previous album teases the next album somehow. So on the final track of um, Winter, I say something like we're all writing our own Great American Novel or something. And when I wrote that, I was like, oh, well, that's the title for the next record. Like, it just, it's a no-brainer. So I knew that from, like, you know, touring and fan mail and stuff that people see us as, like, an uplifting band that makes them feel less alone, which is great. And I realized, it's like, I, I do like that, but I don't want to be trapped in that kind of, you know, like, that narrative space. I uh, I tend to look at it as seasons of television and who wants to do the same thing over and over again, you know? Um, so it was really about... I had the theme and then I had these uh, old recordings from when I was like 20, where I was like, I'm going to write a concept album about Vincent Van Gogh. And I found them. And some of them, I was like, I still like some of these. So like Chuck and Jive, McConnell, um, some bits of done talking or riffs that I wrote when I was 19, 20. And I was just like, you know, I used to really love heavy music. And I, and I kind of fell off of it because I wasn't finding bands that felt like represented me. So I was like, well, why don't I make that sound that I wish I'd heard when I was, you know, really, really into heavier, proggy music. So it was like a tandem thing with the theme being like a departure and then being like, well, we might as well make the instrumental departure also, uh, but not too drastic. Like we still want to feel like the next logical step, you know? You mentioned McConnell and Don Talking, and those are obviously like outliers musically. And I, I really love those. Like Thank the you. first time I heard them, I was like, oh my God, this is like, <laughs> hell yeah, proper level yeah. up. Yeah, um, those are the two that, that, that people, everyone was suddenly seemed like, whoa, I didn't know y'all could do this. And then two, it's like, y'all know these are going to be the ones, right? So it seems like, you know, that it was the right step. Because initially I showed, I think McConnell, just the instrumental to my drummer, Elijah. And he was like, I don't get how this would be a proper song. And then I had to like, so at first I was like, all right, let's just not even go for it. And I was like, well, what if I like, you know, gave him the idea, what I, the idea I meant? He's like, okay, I get it now. Like, cause he's very much goes off with the lyrics and the theme of what I'm trying to say. So I was like, this just sounds like a grindcore song. And I was like, but it's not, but it is, but it's not. And you know, so it really took a, a bunch of leaps of faith to get to that type of feeling. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't really need to ask about the message behind McConnell because it's glaringly obvious. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I'd love to hear about how kind of like that came together musically, as well as done talking and and more of the message behind done talking as well. Okay, so yeah, for McConnell, uh, yeah, I had that idea as one of my earlier riffs from that like Vincent Van Gogh throwaway from nineteen, and I just knew that I really wanted to do like a screaming outro breakdown. I didn't know how I was going to get there because at the time, all I 
think all I had recorded was like the like that like kind of bridge where it's like you swore to protect the little the many not the few. And um I don't know, like I my partner at the time, I was just like, I think I want to write something about like Mitch McConnell, who I just really hate. Um, would you mind doing some research for me? And then I learned through them that like Mitch McConnell's been an asshole for so long. <laughs> so I knew going with the bigger theme, and it's supposed to be the antithesis of Gene, uh, in a way, the song that's right before it. Sorry, my cat's gonna make some more noises. But uh, it's, it's like, so Gene is like this, like, pretty by the numbers pop punk ba- uh, track about my friend Gene, who, got, you know, got abducted by ICE and died in, in their custody. And he was just not into heavy music at all. And so I very much was just like, let me write something that Gene would love and something that Gene would hate. And McConnell, and I, you know, for McConnell, it's like, well, what better topic to be the person that led to Gene's incarceration and many people like Gene, uh, that has just been a snake for so many years. So for that one, it was just like, I really wanted to just, it sounds angry, so I want to go full tilt angry with it and just direct it at someone instead of just the aimless anger that I usually tend to have at the world. Um, so I, it was really just like lyrically, I, it took me a minute to write it, but once it like clicked, it was in. And then, the untalking almost didn't make the record because I was like, this is too insane, even for us. Uh, <laughs> so I was just like, I really want to write just a fight song. I, um, I listen to, to rap and hip hop way more than I do to, to guitar music. And I just like on the treadmill listening to Kevin Gates talking about shooting up the barber shop. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah. And for some reason, it just gets me going in a way that I just can't explain. So I was just like, what if I just wrote the most ignorant bars I could think of over the like the most like, rap rock worshiping instrumental I can write like with these super cheesy like and it just really was a vibe and I was like oh my bandmates are gonna hate this and of course they were both just like no this is the one like please please we need to do this one they're like send me the send me the chords right now what like we are not scrapping this one this is a mood and so like I I think I revised like a verse the second verse or something but uh, I knew I wanted those uh those hip hop a chants in the, in a final verse somewhere on the album, and this one kind of came about from like just wanting to really like get that I don't know like that Rage Against Machine system went down. Just same thing with McConnell like that when when I was twelve and first discovered heavier music that had like black influences, I was like, well, what if they made a, sa- a music uh, a song today? So that was kind of what the feeling for that was, and then just trying to say the most outlandish things I could think of. For sure, yeah, I mean. As a whole, it's like you clearly, I feel like a lot of bands kind of go the route of more accessible as they go on, but you're yeah. kind of like, <laughs> not quite more abrasive, but definitely more like in your face. Um, yeah, yeah. That was very intentional. <laughs> and I think one of the quotes like uh, from the album you know, announcement was kind of like, if your audience is predominantly cis has white men, you're going to kind of like make them see every part of your black experience. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I'd love to hear more about that kind of that mindset. Um, it was just, so for me, I was, I know I was at some point going to be 30 when writing this album were coming out. So like I had that intention. Uh, so I'm now 31. Uh, Elijah just turned 30 before the same came out and Tosh just turned 39 a few weeks ago. So it was just like, I really want to avoid just because of our age going the more popped approach. Cause you know, th- there's no shame to it, but it is definitely a, a noticeable thing. Where someone who like cuts their teeth on the DIY circuit or indie-ish circuit, uh, starts to like kind of pop off and make it. And they're like, all right, let's do some Taylor Swift worship. And it's just, I just know that's not my thing. And I was just like, all right, we're getting this bigger advance and this bigger label. Uh, Dan from One Years wants to write songs with me. 
And he was one of the people who was just like, yeah, like, let's like, maybe we want to get those suburban white kids. Like, and I'm like, no, don't like check out this song. And then he was like, okay, okay. And like, so Gene is still his favorite. Um, he, he helped me the most with that song, but like I made an intent where I usually do. All right. Let's like try and do like have a checklist of things to do, but still keep it as poppy as possible for being a guitar driven band. I was just like, what if we just tried to flip that where we, I lean into my Apple drive-in influences, my Mars Volta influences, my Code and Cambria influences, and just who are all arguably very catchy, but they just don't want to be, you know? So <laughs> trying to make a conscious effort to be like jarring at some points or like the ending of McConnell and then going into something really light like Ganymede, which is like a country song pretty much. So it was like, we can have that balance with what haven't we done? Can we make this challenging and abrasive in a, in a different way than usual? And will people still nod their heads to it? So that was kind of the intent. And I could tell like even my band, like I was saying, they went, they were like, this thing's not the proper song. Uh, Dan Campbell was just like, let's, you know, I, I think we should make this successful to like suburban punk kids or like the label being like, I don't understand. Can I hear another version of this or that? Or I don't think there's labels. Um, people on the team, doesn't matter who. And it was just like, you know, and, but once it clicks, it clicks, you know? So that was very much the intent for it to be like, I didn't know I would like this, or at least not coming from your band, but I really like it. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned kind of like your team, like now that you have kind of a bigger team and also, you know, kind of going around along with the traditional rollout that we were talking about, did you find it easier or harder to kind of like make the album that you wanted to make now that you have kind of more cooks in the kitchen in a way? Oh, easy. I'm very hard to work with. Uh, <laughs> I notoriously say no more than I say any other word. So I uh, like, you know, from the jump, we, I think we talked to about six, seven labels in 2020. And uh, Father Daughter was like, we talked to them pretty early on. And I was just like, we're keeping our masters. We want this much. This is what we want. They're like, yeah, of course. And I was like, all right, they're the one. And then the manager was just like, well, hold up. We still have like three others. I was like, no, they're the ones. So I, I very much try to avoid putting myself in a box where I'm going to be limited. Um, there are some labels out there, you know, they like take percentages of your tour. They get final say on what songs make the album. And it's like, that's very much not our, it's not our scene. And luckily we've built ourselves as a band that doesn't do things like that. So we, there wasn't much like pushback, if, if any. Um, I already work in a way where it's like, okay. I don't, I won't work unless you ask me to. So it's like, you want an album? Okay. We did a song a day for about three weeks and then we turned it into demos and like, this is what the album sound like. And we got the money recorded. Like, here you go. So it's a very much like bang, bang, bang process to where it's like, I know what I want to do. I need this much to do it. Just believe me and we'll knock it out. And that's, we usually try to preface it that way, but I don't think there's been much pushback at all. Really. Everyone's like, I, I think I get what you're trying to go, go after they heard, you know, I think red, white and blue was the one where people were just like, oh, okay. Uh, even the demo version, like, I see, I get what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that one, like, especially after the string of singles between albums, like, that one really caught me. I was like, okay, yeah, this is, <laughs> this is the proper I know, this is the proper I love. Like, it reminded me very much of, like, a suburbia vibe. Yeah, yeah. For me, it was like, I, I, those, the Lucy singles is what we call them. So the Lucys were like, let's kind of finish up this chapter of, like, really leaning into emo and Midwest emo. But then we would do little touches like at the end of Aficionado where there's like a synth part with program drums to kind of give you a feel. And then a bunch of people are like, are you doing pop next? Why does it sound like this? Or like a ballad with Zuko alone being like, well, so what are you going to do on the next record? And then just kind of 
shifting everyone full tilt to like, all right, here's red, white, and blue. And it was very intentional that we would do something like that. Yeah, I mean, could you talk a little bit? You mentioned the writing sessions you did with Dan Campbell. Like, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. And especially kind of like the, you mentioned kind of like basically saying no to someone who you was clearly like a big influence <laughs> on your writing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just, uh, I, I, I'm i difficult to work with and I know this, but obviously when it's like someone's like, yo, I've been listening to you for 15 years. It's It's definitely like, I'd be like, it's okay to say no to him, like to myself, hyping it up. And like, you know, it was very much, he'd be like, okay, he's easy to work with. He was like, okay, like, that's fine. Like, he wasn't just like, I think that's the move. Like, do it. Like, he would give his input. I'd be like, I like this one, maybe not so much this one. And that would kind of, um, that would be it. I also like, am such a freak about letting anyone hear any songs that like, I would send him full demos with drums and bass and guitar. So it's like, it was, he would be like, all right, I get what you're trying to do. So mostly it would be like, Oh, why don't we end this, the album like on a, on a acoustic track? And but, so it was mostly like me being like the bigger picture is what we need to work on. Cause I would be like, here's red, white, and blue. And he'd be like, this is, I have no notes, you know, so things like that. But, uh, and then mostly a thing that I noticed I do is like, I, I will add way too many words that I can actually say comfortably. So he would be like, yo, bro, this is not singable <laughs> and like help me like make it to where I'm still getting the point across that I'm trying to, to write but like take out like 15 million syllables, you know? Um, yeah, it was just like Zoom uh, calls because it was it was in the height of the pandemic. Um, I think we were still in lockdown when we were even discussing working together. So uh, it was through Zoom and he's like in Philly or somewhere near there. And we would just do about two songs probably, work on two or so a day. And it was, like I said, just like helping me not be so verbose with words. But it, it, was, it was a fun process. I, I definitely would do it again. It was just weird after like months of lockdown being like, all right, now I have to like hang out with my idol and act like I'm not about to shit my pants, you know? <laughs> and actually interact with someone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and as far as like the the recording process, recording with Barty Strange, who is obviously very uh, genre fluid as well. Yeah. <laughs> how was that kind of like environment for you? Oh, it's great. We we came up with Barty's, uh, his band before the things doing now, we came up with them doing, you know, the basement shows in Bushwick. Uh, we always have like a friendly rivalry where it's like Bartiz and CS do something. We're like, I want to do that. And then we see Bartiz do something like, we want to do that. So it's just, you know, it's just the continuation of when we met in like 2017. And again, Bartiz being another like genre fluid person. Yeah, he would hear a song be like, yo, like, let's add some laps to the other So I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, let's do that. You know, so like it was... Again, like being very particular about how we operate, like we knew Bartiz is like the one. I think I called him. Was, we set it up even before his record had come out. So I had called him and he was like driving. He like pulled over on the side of the road and called me back after I texted him. And he was like, yes, I, I, yes, I'm down. So it was like we had that energy where we just like the team really wants to see us win and the team really wants to see us make the best product that we can. So being the student with Bartiz was just like, it was, it was a godsend because I know our first two records have a, a, a DIY lo-fi tinge to them because we didn't have enough money to get them to sound how we want. And Bartiz has uh, pedals, guitars, uh, just gear that I only dreamt about using. And his input was just, it really, people, when it comes out, I think they'll hear how Bartiz helped us level up with this record. 
Yeah, you mentioned like the the pedals and equipment and stuff. And I know, I think the last time we talked, you were saying kind of like how you were trying to do something different on the guitar that you'd never done before, kind of with each song. Like, how did that kind of continue on this album? Uh, again, back to Barty. So I would, I would like be explaining a part to him. I'd be like, I think it needs more like, and I usually talk in like, it, it needs to sound like it's like dark blue or you're drowning. And like, he would get it. I'd be like, it just needs to be scary. He'd be like, oh, you want scary. And then he would just dial it in. So it was really a lot of just like, I know that I don't have the pedals. I want to create the sound. But he's like, that's where I really want you to focus on. Even for Top, she used all, I think almost all of his pedals too. I think she only used her Big Muff, I think. Uh, don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure she ended up using almost, same with me, all of the pedals that he provided. And like changing it up, being like, let's go out of this amp. Because I'm very much, I've had the same amp for 15 years. And I would be like, you know what? Let me just... You're the gearhead. I'm, I, I need to just trust that you know that this makes a difference because I'm very much like a, a guitar is a guitar, which is obviously wrong. I know it's wrong. I've been playing for too long not to know that that's wrong. But, and I just kind of like, you know, Bartiz take the wheel. And so he'd be like, try this guitar. Just trust me. And like, I might have, I might start out being like, I don't know. But by the end, when he like, you know, sets it in there with the levels it out, like, oh, wow, you were very right. And I get it now. So a lot of the tone work was like, like I said last time, I wanted to improve, and we really focused on that, just dialing in the sound of this record to be like a cohesive but chaotic departure. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I mean, and how do you think that kind of stuff is going to affect the live show? Oh, God, I can replace almost every pedal I have now. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I've been wanting to upgrade because same thing with my amp. I've been playing the same pedals since day one. So I'm saving up. For the pedals but the, for the effect we are going to have uh a rhythm uh, two people join uh alexa who usually does lead guitar force anyway and then my friend john is going to be our rhythm guitarist so i can just focus on either third guitar or just vocals so we really want to have the biggest sound possible i've been looking at synths to buy also so really trying to like um like make it sound like a one-to-one -one experience like wow they really that sounded like the record is the goal um because our last ones sound like the record because our last records we didn't get the, the bigness we were hoping for so this time we're like we can't have people love the record and see us live and be like damn that was not as like epic as it could have been you mm. know gosh yeah and i mean i feel like the uh the intro to the album you good really kind of is a, a mission statement in you not pulling any punches like <laughs> the, the first line is i've been living reckless i've been breaking bad i've been sleeping with men old enough to be my dad yeah um, <laughs> and you've kind of always been a band that doesn't really censor yourselves yeah um, but can you talk a little about kind of like you know just going for it <laughs> yeah yeah so um a very unlike me thing that was i actually wrote the first song for the record first to this album cycle Instead of the, um, I usually write the title track, but this time I was like, all right, no title tracks. We did that already. I really want the first two records to be a part one and part two, and then this to be a whole new thing on, of its own. So I scrapped the title track idea and I was just like, let's write the first song. So that way I can't, I, I can't make myself back out of any choices, you know? <laughs> so like that first line was very intentional. I was like, we usually pretty hit hard with like a big opening line. I'd like to think for our records. And I was just like, let's just really like go to a 1000 on it. So I literally had that line in my head. And then I was just like, all right, well, where do you go from here? And I was like, all right, I've been drinking a lot because I've been in quarantine and alone. It's like, all right, where do you go from here? And I was just like, how like much of a great tragedy can I make this one song in 90 seconds? You know, 
So it was very intentional that it's going to be, you're in for like a, well, once you hear that first line, you're in for a holy shit moment. I'm, what is that? 20 seconds? I'm 20 seconds into this album. What is about to happen is what I was going for. And then that's why I suck and drive is the next song with those three big hits, you know? And I really wanted to be like, all right, first song. I always wanted to like pull a Kogi and have a 10 minute song as the opener. But I was like, you know what? Let's do 30 seconds, no courses, just three verses and just as hard as hit it as hard as we possibly can. So that was definitely the intent to make it like a, whoa, they're not pulling any punches moment. So by the time they're like six songs in, they're just like, whoa. Yeah. I mean, and you tweeted, I think maybe last week or something about kind of going extra hard on the the queer angle of your music. (laughs) Yeah. And I just wanted to kind of like give the opportunity for you to talk a little bit about kind of like that side of your identity. I, uh, so that's part of the big reason I moved to New York. I was just like, I am so tired of either trying to meet men that are in the closet or meet men that aren't as well dressed as me. <laughs> uh, as vain as that sounds. So I was just like, you know, it's cool, but also, you know, the, the, the pitfalls of speed dating and especially like dating or meeting up with men on nefarious apps is that it's very transactional. It's a lot of, you know, years old pictures or, about 10 years age difference when they originally led on, stuff like that. So I usually try to write like queer songs on like a happier life, but I was like, you know what? If this record's going to be a bummer, let's just make it a bummer. Um, so there's like the intro and there's a track, the routine, and it's just, it's on ASAP Rocky in the last record. I'm like, you know, I'll just overcompensate with hypersexuality. And it's like, that's a very real thing for me where it's just like, I don't know why I'm doing this, but here I am at this hotel on a Tuesday at, at three in the morning. So it's just I really want to lean into that and have it be like a like an uncomfortable look into my life as opposed to like, you know, like, oh, man, fucking disgusting. Made me feel so good. Like, thank you for writing something like that. And like the defiance of this track or that. I was just like, let's talk about the pitfalls while we're in the middle of a pandemic. And that's not all glitz and glamour. It's kind of kind of a goal, especially with dating and and hookup apps and just what have you. For sure. Yeah. And. I mean, you also kind of tweeted recently about kind of as a band of quote unquote older people, yeah. you kind of like <laughs> different goals and objectives that have kind of, you know, made you feel like you've already made it and everything, you know, on top of that is extra. I'd love to hear kind of a bit about like that mindset and how that affects kind of the way you work. Yeah, I am. Um, so I come from a non-musical family. So it really like set in that I've like made it at a comfortable age where they're just like oh rock star like whenever i meet my friend my my parents friends like oh are you taking every lady to bed you up till 3 a.m it's like no like the show ends we sell merch we we take pictures sign vinyl and then we go home um so like i've been playing music since i was 12 i've done a few projects that have like done fine for themselves uh when i was 20 and i definitely had that mindset where i was just like this is nothing because I'm not a rock star. And now looking back, I'm like, no, this is like my third band that has done something that's meaningful to me and made it, quote unquote. And now that I'm seeing it through the lens of a 31-year-old, it's like, I don't know, like who wants to be touring 10 months out of the year, doing drugs every night, in bad shape, getting bad sleep? Like my my idols know who my band is. They want to play shows with us. Like that's, that's it. Uh, we tour enough to break even. Uh, soon to be making a good decent profit that's that's fine with me i um i very much dislike being noticed in public as rarely as it happens 
Um, you know, I just, I just want to pick my nose in the Arby's in peace, you know? <laughs> um, I'm just kidding. Whoever listens to this, I don't do that. I don't eat the Arby's. Uh, <laughs> but you know, like I, I realized as we're getting older or seeing the fatigue in my bandmates when it's like a three week tour and like they, they help out driving and they, and they, they we're a very cooperative band. It's just like, Hey, can you do the merch table? Like, Hey, I know you just sat down to eat your food for the first time since we got it at 2 PM and it's now 11 PM. But this person's a drummer and they really want to talk to you. Can you just come down? Like, you know, you see it. And we're all in relationships. Um, Tasha's married and it's just like, this is fine. This is good. You know, that that's it. We don't have to. It would be nice, obviously, to like just pay the bills with music, but also like tour, doing a few really good tours, meeting other musicians that we really like. And then like advocating for younger musicians that we're just hearing about and think that what we should hear about is that's the goal. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, that whole kind of music industry relationship um, ties in a lot with Shuck and Jive and kind of like, you know, the, that idea of the concept behind the album being, you know, how black genius goes ignored. Can you talk a little bit about, about that song? Yeah, so that actually is directly inspired by us, us talking to labels in 2020. It was just... Obviously, I can't name any names, but there's just like this, like, I don't know if it's a normal industry thing, but we would hear through the grapevine that some label likes us, but then they wouldn't reach out. So then they would like play possum and wait for us to say something, then take like a week to respond, ask for to hear a song. So I'd be like, all right, here's Don't, which is really, it's, I think it's a great song. And then they'd be like, okay, this is really good. Can we hear something else? Like, okay, I guess let's, let's get aficionado out there. It's like, oh, this is great. Can we hear like two, three more? And be like, what do you like? What do you want before you even actually start talking? And we know it'd be like a whole thing, or like we were getting offers from bigger labels, or hearing about what they would offer us if we were to reach out to them, because of course they wouldn't hit us up. And it's just like, take percentage of your touring profits. They get to be like, yo, this song is needs to be changed, make it more poppy, or like write us a hit. And it's just like. It just really was slimy. It was always like 40, 50 year old white men from the suburbs that like, it just felt like, it felt like I was shucking and driving. It's the name. And that's why I like, when we got the father daughter, which is a team of a woman and a black man, I was just like, y'all already get what I, what I need to thrive. So I just, I already, from my online presence, don't care enough about industry bullshit to put it that way. I, uh, I'm just, I just did, it just felt really slimy and gross. And that song was like my response to that. And I was just like, it's fine if we, if we only get to 15,000 monthly listeners instead of a hundred thousand because we didn't play the game. You know, I, I refuse to play a, a crooked, corrupt game in the first place. And if it hurts us, that's fine. But I'm going to write a song about how, how I feel about it, you know? For sure. Yeah. And I mean, kind of going with that idea of like taking the reins, um, you know, you directed the video for Red, White, and Blue, Milk, and Honey. And I know that, like, film was kind of your first, like, huge passion. Um, yeah. So I'd love to hear about kind of, like, what that process was like for you. Yeah, so it's, um, oh, it's so expensive is how it is. Um, that's why I, I defaulted to music. So I've, I've loved film since a good five years before I started playing music. I uh, would sneak down to like, the family room TV at night and, like, go to HBO or Showtime. And, and like initially it was to see naked people of course as we do at like six seven eight years old but then i was just like i remember i saw itamaba tambien which is a, a mexican film came out in like 2001 and it's just like i was like whoa 
there's more than Pixar movies. Like, and I don't think I, I never saw a Pixar or Disney movie again. Like I, I, I'm not bullshitting you. Like I never saw Finding Nemo. Never, never saw The Incredibles. Like I went straight to like my artsy bullshit at like 11 being like, man, this is cool. And then like, I was like, mom, I want a film camera. And then I, then I saw the price tag behind the film camera. So I just kind of had to do like, you know, all right, I'm going to play music. I can get a hundred dollar guitar, you know? So this time, like, as I'm getting older, like I have a savings now, I was just like, I'm going to go to B&H and I'm going to buy a gimbal and a camera and some lenses and stuff and just like do the whole YouTube Academy thing where I just watch hours upon hours of film theory and stuff, which I normally watch anyway, but just for like how Wes Anderson did this instead of how to get perfect color grading. So it wasn't too far out of my wheelhouse already. So I was just like, I'm going to make it easy for myself. First video is going to be a performance video. So the song was only two and a half minutes, maybe two minutes, 45 seconds. And we probably shot an hour or so of footage because <laughs> I was reading about like, you know, you can't tell that your shots out of focus until it's too late. So get more than you need. So it was a lot of that and learning. I, I tried my hand to actual editing for the Milk and Honey video and it's, it's fun. It's, it's just like, I don't know, expressing through film is like lower stage. It's like, yeah, everyone like takes a selfie or like a, a phone video. But being like, man, I like I made this and, and people are telling me it looks good and that like our outfits are nice or the or the set design is nice, you know, like so it's always something I really love clothes, I really like love photography and, and I think we get recognized for our ridiculous outfits just as much as we do our actual music. So it's just like all of those things in the one, plus like cool editing effects and like just really making something that's your own, you know. I really wanted to give that a shot and I think I think I think that we did it. Uh, we're gonna try and do one more video, probably. Um, don't know what song yet, but and I just really want to like save a bit more money, get a, a nicer camera this time, and like take more time to edit and see what I can do. It's like a new challenge after twelve years, eighteen years of playing guitar. It's like, well, what can I do with the camera? You know, for sure. Yeah, I the two little things that I really stood out to me were like the clapping hands emoji for the rhythm change in red, yeah. red and blue. <laughs> yeah. And just like the overall, like the storytelling of the milk and honey video. Like I, I love the way that like kind of the, you know, the, the footage interspersed with the like silent movie cards and stuff. Like, Thank I you. feel like that was a really effective kind of device. Thank you. I, I think we live in an era where everyone's realizing that you can do so much with so little now. Um, I really like saw it when everyone was doing those quarantine music videos, you know, and just being like, yeah, you can have a good looking video for no budget or a small budget. And like, especially like in like where the art house cinema world is now, where every like horror film is like a minimalist exposition about grief instead of just scary shit. Like you really can do anything with the camera and a gimbal and, and some time and I edit it uh, on an editor. Yeah, and I mean, you've mentioned that uh, Huerta is like one, a, a song that was kind of like a really big milestone for you because you've kind yeah. of always wanted to explore, you know, that side of your family. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about kind of like how that came together and, you know, what that journey was like for you. Yeah, so just like the backstory, like I, you know, have made so much of my identity and so much of my art around the Black experience that like people just are shocked to hear that I'm also Mexican. Um, I can't speak it, but if you speak it slow, if you talk slow enough around me, I can, I can like keep up with the conversation and respond in English, you know, or I can read signs, but like, yeah, my grandfather passed before me, or I think even my older brother was born. He's about two and a half years older than me. And so like, it was, that was it. That was just like, he was the only Mexican part of the family that, that, that lived, I guess, until that point, point of my mom's life. 
and everything else was just on her mom's side of the family and just a black Seattle family. My mom has nine brothers and sisters. And like, you know, as a kid, you ask like, yeah, what was your dad like? And you get like the watered down version. And then like one day, uh, probably three, four years ago, like I, I've been living in New York for seven, eight years now. So I went back to visit them. We're just in the car driving. My mom casually like mentions about like her dad's drinking problem. I was just like, what? <laughs> like, you're not going to, you, why am I just, I'm, I'm 25. Why am I just not hearing about this? So like it kind of got me on this whole, I guess, journey. And like I got back from that trip. I did an ancestry.com thing. Uh, my dad's side of the family is from West Africa. My mom's side is from El Torio in Mexico. And like, you know, try, you try to type in Puerta family, Mexico. That's a common name there, it turns out. So, so like I went down. Yeah. yeah. So I went, I went back down the hole of being like, I'm never going to figure this out. And then like kind of accept the moments where it's like, I don't, it's fine if I don't have all the answers. You know, I thought that that would be where I'd learn about my heritage because on my dad's side, the answer is slavery. So no one knows. Don't know. No idea. So I was like, all right, at least I'll get some answers on my mom's side. It didn't quite happen. So I kind of like explored that, knew I wanted to write something. And I wrote the bridge uh, for that song, or I did the guitar part where I was like, oh, it would be so cool. It'd be like some kind of like nice little like groove to it. And, and I was having trouble just with the rest of the song. So I kind of shelved the bridge uh, in my Dropbox riff folders idea on that thing. And then I, I was messing around guitar one day and I showed Eli the part that would become the chorus. And I was like, I have this breakdown I want to use. And he was like, wait a second. What if that was the course of a song? And then like, it was also this record was our first time being really collaborative in the writing process. So I was just like, I don't hear it. He's like, all right, well, let's like, let's figure out an intro. So I like went through my Dropbox. I found the wow. I was like, all right, that, let's put those two together. So we did that. And he was like, let's do like a kind of like, like a, like a, like a galloping verse. So like, I really followed Eli's lead for this song. And so we put that together. And then it just like flowed. We did the, the intro little riff into the verse, into the chorus. And I was like, oh, I hear it now. And then the biggest thing was me just, I just got my, my software to start recording from home. So trying to get them to understand what I meant for the verse or for that bridge was just, it was torture. Cause I was like, yeah, it's like, it's like a clap part. Like, and I would send them like Boy with the Coin by Iron and Wine or like some Pierce the Bale songs. And they'd be like, I don't get what you mean. And so like, I finally did all the painstaking tasks of like, getting it all lined up on drop on um garage band they're like oh i get it so we had the instrumental down and then for the what when i was writing the verse i was just like i don't know what how i'm supposed to attack this without it sounding like any other song that i've written about my heritage you know so i think i had the key in soy which is who am i in spanish and i kind of built out back from that um and like, again, I worked on it with Dan and I was like, I have this, these parts, but I don't think they're that great. He was like, no, it's like, it's so literary. Like, it sounds like an essayist over a song. And that's where like, cause at first that whole course was just filler. It was like, I could have been a farmer in the grasslands, a telenovela stuntman. And I was just like, this doesn't make any sense. And he was like, no, like, you should keep doing this one. Like, it's literary. It's, it's so like fantastical with its telenovela stuntman to like the working class farmer to the musician, but from a different country in a, in a tubist and a Corrado band. And I was just like, okay, let's go from there. And I kind of like asked my mom about my grandfather a bit more and just kind of filled in the blanks about like heritage and the theme of like, I don't know you. Would you like me if, if I did know you? Um, 
you know, heritage is a funny thing. And just kind of, I, we just reverse engineered the song to be something that was like actually cohesive after. I usually like can figure out like what I want a song to be and write it in about a day. This one, I was just like, I think I took a couple of days and been like, okay, it's not bad. It's okay that it's not very direct as I usually am. And let's see how, if anyone likes it. <laughs> And I mean, it seems like that has been the one so far that's gotten the the biggest response. Yeah, surprisingly, it's been that and Milk and Honey. Like, I really thought Red, White, and Blue was going to be the like the anthemic single, but Milk and Honey and and Puerta, people are really, you know, when you're just like, oh, this is the one, everyone's going to love it, and then it's like, oh, people love this one more. That's I, you know, it's a it's a fun surprise to see. For sure. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that and Gene are kind of like the the two kind of like closest to you in a way. I get that. Yeah. Can you talk about that song a little bit more? Yeah. So again, like I was saying earlier, I just wanted to write something that I know Gene would like. Uh, he played drums in a, like, like a funk rock, like jam band uh, when I lived in Kansas city 10 years ago now. Um, and you know, it's, again, it's pretty literal interpretation of lyrics. Like I, we, last time I saw him, I was hitting up for money. Like he owed me like 40, 50 bucks. And I, that was the last time I saw him alive. And so I kind of wanted to really write something he would like. And also, like, I'm not a spiritual person, but something that's just like, he'd be proud if he heard it. If he's somewhere else in the, the cosmos, like, being like, I, I forgive you for, you know, the last time you see me, just sticking me up for, for 220s. Like, it's not even like, bro, you owe me $100, you know. But, you know, when you're 22, 23 and you're struggling and broke, that's, that's 40 bucks is your groceries for like half of the month. It would be so much for me. But yeah, so instrumentally, this is the one that I worked on with Dan that sounds so much different than when I initially had it. I was trying to go for like a 90s, like alt rock kind of sound um, with that really driving three. It's just three chords. And it's just like, a and I really was just like, from those like, now that's what I call whatever CDs I listened to when I was 10, you know. And um, Dan was like, no, no, like you should lean into the pop punk of it. Like, you could have a way bigger course than what you had because initially that last course didn't happen. It's just kind of like, it also was like five and a half minutes long. You know, you try and tribute to a friend and you realize you're doing too much. So Dan helped me cut it down. I think it's like a little under four minutes now, but he had a way better structure than I had. And it was just like, we didn't change any of the lyrics. He just once again helped me try and make it singable. So it's not me trying to just huffing for air, trying to get all the words out. But yeah, thematically, uh, I just, it's just regret, but in a very specific kind of way. And we started playing this one on tour and like the response of a lot of people, like some big characters crying, being like, yeah, I lost a friend too. And like, I know it's through a different circumstance, but like the thought that you should, that you should, you didn't get to turn 30, uh, that you didn't get to like have a career. Um, you didn't get to finish college. Like it really resonates with more people than I thought it would. Cause I, I tend to write songs from just like my experience and no one else is going to like get that. But like, there's subversive ways to listen to Gene that I'm just now learning. Um, it doesn't have to be, you have to have lost someone to ice also. It could be anything. Um, so that one really was just alt rock, pop punk tribute to a fallen friend and like really trying to go for it vocally at the end. Uh, that was a big thing I worked with with Dan is um, I'm a self-taught singer and I don't think I'm particularly good at it. So that and Shuck and Jive, he was like, bro, you, I, you can do this. You should really go for it on these parts and that's why that last course those those harmonies that are very hard for me to do sound very 
intentionally Wonder Years esque and pop punk. And then on Chuck and Jive, it's all just me going 100 to zero to 100. Like, so this was the first, even though it comes after that, it was the first song I wrote where I was like, let me try and vocally go for it while making Gene Proud. Yeah, it's all, it, you've kind of mentioned it, but it's like always so interesting to me how it's the most like personally specific lyrics that are usually the ones that hit the hardest for me. That's <laughs> yeah. like, I have, I literally don't understand this situation besides what I'm being told in this song, but yeah. like, it hits so close to home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, which, which is odd because obviously me being like a queer black person coming up in metalcore and hardcore and, and punk, like it wasn't written for me, but I still, you know, and then I don't know how it never clicked. I'm just like, Oh yeah, I guess I should, I should, you know, I should have seen it, you know? Yeah, and I mean, the on kind of the opposite side of things is uh, in a van somewhere outside of Birmingham, which is like very much has this, uh, it feels, you know, more on the fictional side of things than the personal. Can you talk a little bit about that one? Yeah, that, that one actually is very literal. Uh, we were, God, on tour 2017. I think the only U.S. tour we got to do for winter before COVID hit. And... We were touring with this rapper named Alfred and their, their friend, D, who was, who was their DJ slash like they would do songs together, uh, Logan. And so literally like we were in the back of the van. I grew up, you know, very Southern Baptist, like men aren't supposed to hug, you know, touch Mississippi bullshit. And like Logan started falling asleep and like his head hit my shoulder and I had a whole just internal monologue of like, you should put your arm around him. And then realizing why do you have to monologue about this? And it was just like a whole thing where I was in crisis. And no one knew what's the wiser. Um, we were like on our way to like, we were playing with an insignificant other in their garage in the backyard. And like, I was just off for the whole rest of the day. But like, you know, you have to hide it because it's such a weird thing. Everyone would be like, well, what was the issue? Just hug your homie. What are you talking about? You know? <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was a very literal thing. And it's like, it got me going to like the whole toxic masculinity is a self-created thing. Men are oppressing each other for no reason. Like, you know, where it's like, Feminists are fighting to be held equal to men because we've been putting them down. Black people are fighting to be held equal to a lot of other races. They've been putting them down, but men are doing it to themselves. We are, we are putting ourselves in prisons where it's like, I can't tell you I love you. I can't hug you. For what? For what? For nothing. There's really no reason. So I really want to explore that. So the first verse is kind of like our, our sarcastic take on like, Oh man, why is this guy, why is my friend trying to buy me a beer? Is he trying to fuck me? Why? What, what, what's his ulterior motive? Like, I've very much been that friend and people being like, what are you trying to do? Like, you know, once I run that I'm by being like, do you like me? And they're like, no, man, I just wanted to hang out with you, you know? So it was very intentional. And then the second half is me just trying to just dial in my very hard me without you shit and just scream, talk some stuff out. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I mean, going back to that kind of idea of the, you know, the ultra personal lyrics being the ones that hit the most. Um, and the, and yeah, I'm good. You talk about, um, the bell jar and kind of how you connected with that, even though it was like literally something that, you know, a person, the person who wrote it couldn't imagine that someone like you would exist. Like, what is it about that? Um, that kind of like really connected with you? For one, it was like one of the first books I read in high school where it wasn't just like, Again, like the whole point of this this album is to turn the concept of the Great American Novel on its own. I would consider the Bell Jar a Great American Novel, but a lot of people that I've talked to you, like online in person, don't because it's not like do some Don Draper esque cool man bullshit or some you know some I went to Morocco and did drugs and came back like 
And it's just like, that was the first record, or, or sorry, the first book I read where I was just like, wow, like, this is a perspective that I have not seen. Um, it helped me understand my own depression and anxieties way more often. And like, you know, when you're 13, 14, like you don't feel everyone's moody is what your parents say. But it's like, I felt seen by, by, by Libby Plath. Uh, wait, what is Sylvia? Sylvia Plath, sorry. Um, Sylvia Plath that I was just like, I don't know. I haven't read it since, but I was just like, like I, every so often, like my, my, uh, partner had a copy and I'd like start reading it and I'd be like, I don't think I want to cry today. <laughs> you know, so I would like reread the first few chapters and be like, I can't. I, and like, and now it's like this mythic thing in my mind where I'm like, I read it at a purest moment in my life and I, and I got what I needed from it. And just the thought that like someone got me who, if she was alive, would just, I don't think would understand how I came to that conclusion, you know, and it's the same thing going to the second verse, but like Martin Luther King Jr. and like his whole humility, which I am, I had none of. So it's just like the whole, I like to think that the album wraps up on the point of, I've just told you a bunch of conflicting things, but now you can understand my thought process a bit more. Um, or it's like, you, you know, Dr. King, I won't change, not even for you. I've been raised on, I've been, you know, raised on rage and spite, and it's just like progress. Sometimes is just being to understand why you said or did or felt something, and not sometimes you're not ready to like move on from it or fix the problem. But acknowledging that there's a problem, as you know, is a pretty common phrase, is like is a very big step. And like I'm trying to end the record on acknowledging that there are problems, some outside my control, some of my own fault because I just am combative, combative by nature. And just the bell jars really just like some of them are just like, I don't know why I have this chemical imbalance, but like feeling seen is all I can hope, ask for right now. Yeah. And the, the literal last words of the album are, I know I should wrap this up in some inspiring way, but I'm sorry. I'm just too tired today, um, which is kind of very much the antithesis of the end of uh, I spend the winter writing songs about getting better. Um, <laughs> I guess, can you talk about kind of like concluding it that way? Yeah, I, so it's the same thing. Where like you know, you don't want to write the same epic, you know, season of television twice. Uh, I really like epic enders. Like even on the first record, we have a two-parter with a key change in it, and then it kind of goes into this epilogue that is this like three, four, or six, eight waltz song, and then the last record is like this big what what is it seven minutes probably seven eight minute long song, and it's just like it's just epic, and like I was like, what if we don't do that? Um, I think that Americana is strong enough on its own to be this really like genty, proggy, like it's epic enough, but it's also three and a half-ish minutes long. And I just really want to intentionally have that be the big bang. And then the last song be kind of a fizzle in that. Um, for me, like my anxieties and depression very much work to where I uh, will overwork myself to the point where I just fizzle out. So I wanted it to feel like, like a come down from like a manic episode where it's like you're realizing what's going on, but like, I'll get to it tomorrow, you know? <laughs> so, and like, you know, we, we are very much known for like ending our songs with a, our albums with a bit of hope or our live, our live performances are very funny and we're very, you can tell we're having fun is the compliment we always hear, which we love to hear. And we really want to start integrating some of these songs and be like, people just really think about it. Like when, they, when, when we started playing Gene and people, like we didn't get that much of applause, but then every time we played it, people would come up and be like, I, I, I'm crying. I, I, I don't know 
how I feel this, but I do thank you for writing the song. So this, the ender is very much fizzling out with, I could do something about it, but it's just with, you know, pandemic, with, with health insurance in this country, uh, student loans is like, I just don't know if me even making a difference or trying to make a difference would even be worth it, you know? Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, I mean, that segues pretty nicely into my final question, which is always, um, you know, just to ask for something you've been thinking about lately or a piece of advice that you want to share, whether it's music or life or anything else, uh, just just something you want to share. Oh, I hate to add to the deep the discourse, but I've been thinking a lot about Kanye West, who is the reason I am alive and doing music and the dichotomy of watching his super inspiring documentary and then opening my phone and seeing just the ignorant things he's saying. Um, there's a very real, you know, mental health is a thing that everyone's just now as a collective understanding, but it's also like holding them accountable. Um, seeing that in myself, because I've been a combative little shithead for 31 years now. And just being like, where do I begin? How do I, you know, how do you get your, say what you want to say? But without alienating people or without like putting a damper on people like me that have believed in Kanye since day one. Like I remember when college dropped off the day it came out. And so like that's what I've been thinking about a lot lately. Just as we're coming, not even coming out of a pandemic, but as we're adjusting to a new type of normal. I don't know, be kind to each other, you know, if you're gonna watch that kind of documentary, make some try and make something, you know, feel inspired, realizing like the double-edged sword that is celebrity. Um, I have some anxieties about if this album blows up and then I can't just be myself. Um, so just thinking about like the human condition and the third life ending thing that's popped up since I've been born. And just like, I want to end on a place of hope, but also like passion and hope can only go so far. Um, but also if you're too tired to fight, that's understandable. You know, like that's just the whole thought of this record and this album cycle and me at 31. It's like, I'm sick of fighting. I just want to exist and kind of be, you know, so not really a, a upper, not really a downer, but like take care of yourself, you know, as best as you can. <laughs> like the, uh, the old one years hoodie that said realist pop punk. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a realist. That's I'm not a pessimist. I'm not an optimist. I'm a realist. Yeah, I see these things happening. I may choose to interact with them. I may not. I can't be faulted. I can't fault myself anymore. You know, because especially like 20s, you're like, I need to try and change the world however I can. And then seeing just how corrupt things are and how I may choose between Trump or Biden just being like, I really don't want either of these things to happen. So it's just like, you know, growing up, this band is just watching me grow up and my thoughts on growth and change. And so that's just the theme of life and forever, probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I saw something somewhat recently that I was like, isn't it kind of ridiculous that we can easily, more easily imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And I'm like, that's bleak, but yeah, true. <laughs> it's so bleak. Or like I, I foolishly thought when I was 29, I was like, I, I would call it my get ready for 30 year. And I thought I would have no other things to work on about myself, no other goals to have. I would just coast for the next, you know, 50 to 90 years on my life, <laughs> fingers crossed. And it's just really, um, it really makes you like sit down and it knocks you on your ass. You're like, oh no, I'm 31. I'm still very much in the middle of working on myself and trying to become the best me I can. And it's probably not ever going to be a goal that ends, you know, and the realization that it's like, yeah, the work is never done. 
but it's okay that you aren't doing a perfect job. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, is there anything that we haven't hit on about uh, the Great American Novel that you've been really wanting to get out there? Oh my God, I don't know. This is like, so this is the first interview I've done that's like, here's the uh, here's the album, let's actually talk about it. So I know that's it. Like, you know, it's never too late to get the cover gear head. It's never too late to go back to your earliest influences and see if you can do them. I very much was like, a prog guitarist at 20 and I'm just now diving into the 31. So it's just never too late. Um, that's all I want to say. If I can make some type of positive note about this very sad album is that, or that tweet the other day where I was like, yeah, we're so glad we feel like we've made it. Like I really do feel that. And we're just grateful for every opportunity that we get at thus far after this comes out. And it's, it's never too late to try to do what you want to do, but you don't always have to monetize it. You don't always have to try and make it your one thing that you do, which is the big thing I learned making this album. For sure. Nice. I love it. And I am very appreciative that Proper can still keep me on my toes three albums in. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. That is always the goal. I hope you'll appreciate the poetic beauty and the fact that Proper was episode one of this podcast and is now episode 111 as well. Always a joy to talk to Eric, and always a joy to get new music from Proper. As I said, this is 100% without a doubt my favorite Proper album ever, and I think it's the best, and I also can't wait to see what they're doing next, because much like my favorite ever band, The Wonder Years, Proper just seems to get better with every single album. If you missed it, maybe go back and check out the very first episode of this pod. Um, The audio is honestly a little bit lacking, because I was literally recording over a phone call, um, but the content was still great. Um, And also be sure to check out the other episode that dropped today with Brutaligators. Two awesome episodes, two awesome bands that I highly recommend. Find the Call is brought to you by Sound Talent Media in partnership with Evergreen Podcasts. A special thank you as always to The Alternative for helping to promote the show, Jariah for the theme song, and Michaela Jane for the artwork. You can keep up to date by subscribing to the podcast and following the show on Twitter and Instagram at FindTheCallPod. Feel free to email any questions, comments, or other feedback to me at FindTheCallPod at gmail.com. Stay inspired. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King, an off-road minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.